This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Some of the state's most historic places are also endangered. Each year, Colorado Preservation Inc. compiles a list of spots that are at risk of deteriorating or disappearing altogether. Why don't we speak with the director, Jennifer Arrigo Charles, about this year's list. Welcome to the program. Thank you. There are four endangered sites chosen for 2016, and one is the Tabor Opera House, very well known in Leadville, and I thought in decent condition. What's the what's the story there? Well, this site actually, you know, it came to us several years ago. It's been nominated several times. And this time around, it's privately owned, but the owners want to sell it, and it looks like the city might be coming on board to purchase the property. So there's a lot of money that's still not confirmed for the site. There's not a plan for it moving forward 100%. So there's some uncertainty with the site, and we're just one partner that's going to um, you know, help make a difference for this wonderful, iconic building in Colorado. And what makes it iconic? Well, it has such a rich history. You know, it's right on Main Street, and it had its opening all the way back to uh, 1879. Um, Of course, connections with Silver and Horace Tabor, and um, there were many great performances there, everyone from Houdini to um, John Philip Sousa. There's just been a, a wealth of great performances that are there. And inside, gosh, if you haven't been, there's so much historic material that survives. I mean, even some of the old stage scenery from the 1800s. Huh. I understand that at one point, this is not recently though, uh, the building might have been demolished. Yes, in the 50s. Um, you know, after Horace Tabor lost the property, it passed on to the Elks Club. And then, you know, they wanted to move on. They didn't have a purpose for the building anymore. And there was concern that it was going to be torn down for a parking lot. So, um, you know, it was bought um, at that point, I think it was 1955, and um, the same family, the Bland family, continues to own it today, and, you know, now it's their time to move on, and they were looking for um, a new owner for the property, and the city of Leadville is determined to uh, phase that next chapter for the beautiful building. It's so interesting, Jennifer, because I think there was a Tabor Opera House as well in Denver that was a gorgeous building that was torn down. Yes, exactly. We lost that here. We want to make sure we don't lose uh, the other one in, in Leadville. You have chosen uh, endangered locations from around the state since 1998, and uh, past selections have included the Colorado State Capitol Dome, which these days is in much better shape uh, with new gold leaf. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Toltec Hotel in Los Animas County was a previous selection. How do you choose endangered sites? Well, the first step is it has to come from the public. You know, there's so many threatened buildings out there, you know, for our organization to get involved. We want to know that it's a building that the public cares about. And it's not just buildings. They can be historic landscapes, features. I mean, we've even listed the wonderful neon signs on Colfax. So uh, the first step is for the public to nominate it. Um, And every site that comes through as a nomination is assigned to a preservation professional to go out there, you know, see the site firsthand, meet with the public. Um, So even if your site doesn't move on to the final list, it's going to get the attention of the preservation community. Hmm. Final selection is up to our board and staff, but really we consider how significant is the site? You know, how historic is it? How threatened is it? What's the level of community support? And, you know, how can our organization come through and assist the site? Um, You know, that's all stuff that we consider as well as where it's located regionally. 
So this year, you know, we're pleased to announce a sugar beet factory. Yes, you heard that right. Sugar beet factories. And we'll talk about uh, their, their place in Colorado history after a break. This is Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking about endangered spots in Colorado with the head of Colorado Preservation Incorporated. That's Jennifer Origo Charles. Back in a moment. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's rejoin our conversation about endangered places in Colorado. These are historic places that have made it onto this year's list compiled by Colorado Preservation, Inc. Joining us is its director, Jennifer Origo-Charles. So far, we've talked about the Tabor Opera House in Leadville as one spot that's on the list. And another is a sugar beet factory. This is in Brighton, Colorado, uh, a bit north and what, I guess, east of Denver. Uh, First off, what's a sugar beet? You know, people may have heard of sugar cane, but maybe less familiar with beet. Well, if you're familiar with the traditional beet, take it, make it white and (laughs) grow it by at least 10 times. I mean, this is massive. If you hold it in your hands, it's almost like a a small child. Uh, They were large beets that... um, were produced kind of throughout Colorado, a lot on the um, plains. And there, you know, there are a few factories that still remain. There are five that are still in Colorado out of the 13 factories that were owned by the Great Western Sugar Factory. And are any of them still operational, or do they all sit as kind of monuments to the sugar beet industry? You know, the site in Brighton is unique in that it's still a distribution and storage center for the amalgamated sugar companies. So they came in, um, the Great Western Sugar Plant that closed in 1975, and then Amalgamated Sugar, which still works with sugar beets, um, purchased the site in 1985. And right now they're using some of the facilities for their storage and distribution. And then the old uh, factory building is still there, kind of in the middle. They're not sure what to do with it. It's it, can be a liability to them at this point, and, you know, they're taking out the asbestos that's in it now, and just trying to figure out what's the next step for this building. If it needs to go down, you know, can we get it documented ahead of time? Um, And is there a buyer that's interested in in readapting this factory and its old smokestack? So there is a risk of the factory being torn down. I seem to recall a few years ago some trespassers making it in there, and um, it can be a dangerous place to hang out. Yeah, you know, and that's kind of the concern, even though it's fenced off and, you know, it's kind of boarded up. Unfortunately, vandals still can get inside. And, you know, if something happens, the company can be liable. And this was a great old factory built in 1917. Why do you think it's important? Um, And why, more broadly, were sugar beets important? Well, you know, sugar beet was kind of known as the the term white gold at one point. Uh, They process as many as 60 tons of beets a day in this facility. So, you know, especially in the agricultural areas of Colorado, this is the heart and soul of the community. Um, When you think that this factory closed in 1977, there's still so many farmers and uh, individuals that live in Brighton that, you know, this is their livelihood. Uh, So, you know, we want to make sure that these resources don't completely disappear, especially when you're looking at a a great old plant from uh, 1917 that at the time was known as the the showcase facility. They even uh, were visited by Dwight Eisenhower in uh, the 1940s. Well, let's talk about one more site before we go uh, on the 2016 list. This is the Glen Huntington-designed bandshell in Boulder. Uh, Huntington was a modernist architect who also designed the 
Boulder High School, the county courthouse building, uh, which is quite prominent uh, on the mall there. Uh, Boulder officials have laid out a master plan for the site of the band shell, which includes the band stand. Why is this spot endangered? Well, at this point, we're not certain the future of the band shell. Uh, it was designed, as you mentioned, you know, in 1938. It was dedicated to the city by the Boulder Lions Club. And right now, the city has talked about potentially expanding the road that's right behind it. Um, that would require taking out some trees, and they're not sure if that would mean moving the band shell or tearing it down. So we want to make sure, you know, our number one goal is if we could keep it in place um, where it is in the context of the area and its original design landscape, um, that would be ideal. But of course, there's so much pressure, isn't there? Uh, development pressure as the population grows uh, and so on. Certainly. And, um, you know, this site was recognized by the community in 1995. They kind of fought for it the first time to make it a bolder local landmark. Um, so it's already been recognized within Boulder as being important. And, um, you know, we'd love for them to reinterpret the band shell so that it's used more effectively and um, can be that community showcase that it once was. All right, Jennifer, leave us with what your biggest success has been compiling the endangered places list and um, perhaps the, the thing that did disappear that you're so sad to have seen gone. Let's start with the, the rosy. What, what are you most proud of having saved? Well, this was a site that we just listed last year as a save. It is the Como Depot. I'm not sure if you've been up to Como. It's a small little community right near Fair Play, but um, there's this beautiful old railroad depot that 10 years ago, if you walked by, you would have thought there's no way that this building could be saved. I mean, if, if the wind blew just right, maybe it'll fall down. There were holes in the ceiling, um, you know, just Boards were falling off. It was in a terrible disarray. Um, but we were able to list it. We brought together the right partners. Um, and today, it's actually, they had a wedding there. There's a museum inside. I mean, it's a beautiful building that I would encourage everyone to uh, go up and see if they haven't. And something that has been lost now to history? You know, um, luckily, I would say our program has a, has a pretty good track record. We've only lost six sites. The last one that was a loss was in 2013, and it was this great old um, homestead kind of outside of the Littleton area. We had hoped the developers would incorporate it into their um, plan, but, you know, it had to go down. And one of the things that we try to do is what are the lessons that can be learned from any lost sites? You know, how can we help other sites um, to ensure that they're safe for future generations? Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Jennifer Origo-Charles is director of Colorado Preservation, Inc. By the way, the fourth endangered building on this year's list is the Belvedere Theater in Central City. It's currently owned by Gilpin County, which hopes for a future restoration. We'll be right back with female mariachi players and other real-life stories that inspired plays at the Colorado New Play Summit. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Each year, there's a competition in Denver for playwrights. They submit their scripts, and only four get picked for the New Play Summit. Those plays will premiere this weekend and the following at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. And joining us to talk about this year's selections is the DCPA's Artistic Director, Kent Thompson. Welcome back to the program. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. One of the selections that caught our eye is a play about an all-female mariachi band. 
Yes. Uh, tell us about uh, this production. Well, Jose Cruz Gonzalez, we've produced twice before, and he actually came up with this idea because in the 70s, there were these female mariachi bands, and of course, they broke all barriers. First of all, it's a male, primarily music industry, although there have been previous female players. And second of all, they got a lot of grief from their own community because they were stepping outside the boundaries of whatever roles whoever thought women should be in, particularly Latino women. And so he based it on some real stories, but then he invented his own play. And, of course, it features actors and actresses that must play not only mariachi instruments but sing and act. So it's a really interesting casting challenge. And the the piece is called A.M.? Yeah, it's called AM or American Mariachi. That's really what it stands for. So he's changed it now to make sure it's clear. And, you know, this points to the fact that these are works in progress. And to see these acted on stage at the New Play Summit is not to see a polished, finished product by any means. No. That's part of the fun. That's part of the fun. And it's also part of what we do to help the writer develop the script. So you'll see... Actors at music stands, they're reading the script. Somebody will be reading the stage directions. What's interesting about it is it's incredibly captivating to watch because you're kind of watching the first thing out, the first iteration of this play out. But it's also you supply in your imagination the set, the costumes, and other things. That's what I found because the sets aren't there and the costumes aren't there. But uh, a few years ago, I saw a, a retake, a reboot, if you will, of The Unsinkable Molly Brown. Right. And it was a musical as well. But it was done entirely on a, on a naked stage, if you will. And my memory of it is that there was a set and costumes. I know. And that's what happens is you, you start to put it in yourself. And like all of our memories, we start to inhabit it. And you kind of go through the same process that a designer would do for the production. Mm. Uh, and this is open to the public, we should say. Another piece selected for the New Play Summit is about romance in Antarctica. Uh, this is called Midwinter by Matt Smart who I understand spent three months at the South Pole. That's right. He wants to do plays about every continent, and he only has one left. So he went to Antarctica to the McMurdo Station as a volunteer, basically, for three months, and he was a janitor. But he discovered that, you know, within that environment, because you're contained for so much of the time and it's a group of people, it's like there's epic love stories that last for two weeks and then it changes. And in midwinter, they have a celebration, which is supposed to be kind of the wildest celebration of the time they're there. But it's exactly that midpoint between when the station has closed for the winter and when it will reopen. So they always have this kind of celebration and dinner. And he was kind of riffing on also the story in Midsummer, where, you know, there's kind of the love stories going on. Of Shakespeare's Midsummer's Night's Dream. That is to say, uh, there's a point at which you you can't come in or out of that station. And this is the midpoint of your committed stay to Antarctica. That's right. So that's Midwinter by Matt Smart. Why don't we take a quick break and then talk about some of the other uh, somewhat exceptional pieces that were chosen for the New Play Summit? Great. Thank you. We'll be back in just a moment with the DCPA's artistic director, Kent Thompson. The New Play Summit takes place this and next weekend. 
You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And this weekend and next, the New Play Summit takes place in Denver. This is uh, an event of national recognition in the theater community. Hundreds of playwrights submit their work in hopes that those plays will be workshopped in Denver, potentially reaching national audiences after the fact. Uh, Joining us is Kent Thompson, who's Artistic Director for the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. Another piece that was selected, uh, I guess, takes place after Shakespeare's death. It does. It's kind of a rollicking story that's about the actors, the managers, the printers, the publishers, and all these people that worked so hard to get the first folio printed, 27, 28 of his plays. And the thing about it that's so extraordinary is if it hadn't been printed in one book, we're pretty sure we would not have many of the plays today of Shakespeare. This is kind of a rollicking backstage drama and comedy. And it's not unlike Shakespeare in Love, except it's about big personalities kind of fighting over each other about who can get the first folio published. And the piece is called Book of Will. Book of Will, Will which you can figure out. Will Shakespeare, but but also his will, I suppose. Yes, his will, his legacy to us by Lauren Gunderson. Well, and I think what's so fascinating, how, how soon after Shakespeare's death did that scramble begin? Within about two years, it had been published. Hmm. And there was, you know, but at that time, they were published in what we would call paperbacks, but quartos. But they were often from the memory of the actor or somebody would go into the theater and transcribe it. Wow. And then it was put into type and set. But it was often not exactly right. So what they're trying to do is find the best of each of these individual Uh, publications and the best memories they have of the actors that have performed the roles and recreate the plays. It sounds almost like detective work. It is. Yeah. And, of course, there's many people plotting against each other who would get the rights and who they could sell them to and all of that stuff. How Shakespearean. Very. Yeah. One other play that I'd like to talk about, a climate change expert is the focus of it. And she is at the same time dealing with uh, some very personal issues. What is this piece? Two degrees. You know, it relates to if the planet temperature increases two degrees, it'll change profoundly the planet. And it's a wonderful play by Tira Palmquist. It's a climatologist who spent her career in Greenland studying the ice shelf, uh, what's happening to the ice at that part of the world. And yet, while she's been gone pursuing this, her husband has died. She suddenly gets her kind of moment in the sun of politics. She's brought to Washington, D.C. to testify before some of the environmental panels of the Senate. And she's haunted by the ghost of her husband. And so it's a really unusual, beautiful play about this woman going through grief for both the earth and grief for her husband. Right. Climate change on a global scale and then climate change in her personal life. Yes. And she's, you know, although she's a scientist and she can talk about climatology, she's also, of course, a human being. And she has to talk about her emotions and find a way for that to come out. So uh, I suppose one could look at the lineup for the new play summit and say, well, the Denver Center is trying to say something. Uh, You have a piece that is about breaking barriers for women and for Latinas in particular, a piece that very clearly says climate change is a thing and we're going to produce a show about it. And there's the other piece, which is set in Antarctica. I suppose climate change may rear its head there. Is this an opportunity to make a statement? 
It is an opportunity to make a statement, but I got to say it's more to me about presenting so many diverse viewpoints of the world. And it's really about, you know, giving women, different people, different ideas, different playwrights, playwrights of diversity, an opportunity to bring these new plays forward. Because I think the big value of theater, particularly plays, is they allow us to see the world through a new perspective. So I think we're making a statement more about diversity than any one point of view presented by a play. Which of the plays, how many years has the summit been going on, by the way? This is the 11th year. 11th year. year. Uh, which of the plays would you say has had the most success since it debuted at the at the summit? Well, I would say Legend of Georgia McBride by Matthew Lopez, which was about a heterosexual man that became a drag queen in, t- in a small bar in Florida. And that uh, went to New York, got great reviews this past fall. Uh, the Whale by Samuel Hunter about the most improbable topic you can think of, an 800-pound man in his apartment teaching English, trying to get together with his estranged daughter. Uh, many of them have been done multiple times, but those are probably the highlights. I remember from The Whale that uh, the actor had to wear an enormous fat suit that had to actually have fans in it and to cool him. Right, and we had to we had to be able to take it off like a minute so we could put new ice packs and, you know, recharge the suit and get it back on before he did the next scene. Thanks for sharing this with us. Oh, thank you very much. Kent Thompson is Artistic Director of the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. He talked to us about this year's Colorado New Play Summit. It takes place this weekend and next. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.